0: Section three of the Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Nagy. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section three. In 1820 when cooper was thirty years old he read a feeble conventional english novel irritated by its futility he announced to his wife that he could write a better one and the result was his first book precaution it is a poor book because it is not grounded on the author's experience and because cooper had not the kind of imagination that can give reality to human characters in ordinary social surroundings but he learned his lesson and turned immediately to outdoor scenes with which he was familiar and to adventures which he had witnessed or which were appropriate to the ground he knew the spy a tale of the revolution was successful and he followed it industriously with the pioneers the pilot and the last of the mohicans those who insist that a young country ought to produce a young literature will find Cooper a rather valid subsumption under a theory that is not quite valid, but is largely a matter of verbal analogy. What does young mean? Our literature is a pleasant-voiced, fine-mannered gentleman, while past middle age. There is all too little of the untamed boy about it, but Cooper is in many senses young. Though he was a dignified and self-consciously important personage without a touch of the boyishness that bubbles out of irving mark twain and stevenson yet his art never grows up it is always immature awkward a thousand years younger than the craftsmanship that kipling had learned at twenty-one that the young of all ages all over the world welcomed cooper is an obvious fact such undeniable youth is a warrant of immortality which adult criticism cannot gain say and would not if it could how many of us at the age of fifteen have gone to the public library taken out a story by cooper returned it two days later and taken another then another allowing no rival author to intrude in the breathless succession that in the years when we inhabited cooper's world for two months at a stretch we were capable of giving other months of equally unbroken attention to the interminable henty and oliver optic somewhat tarnishes the luster of our admiration it enables our elders to discredit cooper by pointing to the company of uninspired storytellers with whom in our innocence we indiscriminately grouped him and the wise ones can also indulge in dark and slurring hints at another kind of literature which we read likewise in our innocence yet with a thrilling sense of guilt We are rather stumped for an answer to the argument that boys who like Henty and certain unnameable authors, just as heartily as they like Cooper and Scott and Tom Brown, are not trustworthy judges. On our side, however, is an international league of youth. Boys of alien speech are reading Les Tours des Dames and Les Lesse de Mockenhener. Cooper's books were published, as they came out, in thirty different European cities. He was almost as famous on the continent as Scott and Byron. The consensus of the races and the generations has stamped him with approval which some of our other favorites have not received. Our cultivated sires must, then, lay aside Meredith and Anatole France long enough to tell us why Uncas is as familiar to the schoolboys of Berlin as to those of New York, and why in nearly a hundred years Cooper's popularity has not abated. Pretty work the elders make of explaining it. They talk about style character drawing, the epic of pioneer life, and attribute this, the most popular yarn spinner literary virtues, no more appropriate to him than to the graven images of chinkag gook that used to stand before the tobacco shops. Style? His style is one of the obstacles that his story plows through, like bumpo shouldering through underbrush. Listen to this shaved by the silent imputation and inwardly troubled by so unaccountable a circumstance the chief advanced to the side of the bed and stooping cast an incredulous look at the features as if distrusting their reality his daughter was dead the unerring feeling of nature for a moment prevailed and the old warrior hid his eyes in sorrow how can a boy like such writing as that pompous inhuman Erring against every feeling of nature. The boy does not like it. He disregards it. He understands that the daughter is dead, a fact plainly stated amid the majestic polysyllables, and that the chief is sorry. The boy goes on with the story and leaves it to the critics to worry about the style. Cora and Alice are racing with death. It is an exciting race which any full-bodied person will follow, must follow, fascinated to the end. The sophisticated reader condescends to watch it, is ensnared in the interest of it all, and then suddenly Cooper calls his heroines distressed females. That is almost fatal, illusion wavers, but the sensitive spectator grits his teeth, recovers and continues to watch. Cooper gets him and holds him in spite of everything. Meanwhile distressed females has not distracted the attention of the boy. Cooper may call the ladies anything he likes, so long as he does not leave a doubt as to who they are and what is happening to him, and he never leaves any such doubt. Some books have cast over the young of all generations a spell which no mature audience dissolves. For example, Robinson Crusoe, Two Years Before the Mast, and Treasure Island. The grown man who has read widely knows that Treasure Island is an admirable style he joins with his son in praising it but they do not praise just the same things if the book were rewritten so that all the rhythm were knocked out of the sentences it would be destroyed by for many adults whereas the essential narrative would hold the boy almost as well as the book does in its verbal perfection for the boy and for most readers cooper is as good with his faults as he would be without them to foreign readers some of his faults are not evident translation removes them or unfamiliarity with english softens them balzac who admired cooper would have shivered at french as bad as cooper's english that said balzac to a friend is fenimore cooper's latest work it is fine it is grand it is intensely interesting i know no one but walter scott who has ever risen to that grandeur and serenity of coloring it is the stuff of cooper that counts he, his lakes and woods and seas, unpoetically as he conveys them, are in themselves poetic, a wonder of wilderness and water, alive with rapid, various adventure, heart stopping ambuscades, and steering of a ship past treacherous rocks. It matters not to the unsophisticated mind that Natty Bumpo talks sometimes like Cooper, and sometimes like the unliterary woodsman that he is the enjoyment of the critical olympian is disturbed by violations of character especially of the diction of character by preposterous phrasing by ungainliness which is due not to untutored simplicity but to an unmastered bookish vocabulary When the professional critic, knowing that Cooper is good, sets out to praise him, he often makes the mistake of denying Cooper's faults, like a romantic who should say of a squinting woman, I love her and admire her, therefore she has lovely eyes. Cooper's immortality need not be explained by standards to which he does not come up. It is no credit to Cooper, or to the critic, to attribute to the deerslayer stories, perfections, without which they have survived splendidly and can continue to survive. Professor Lounsbury says that the pathfinder and the deerslayer are pure works of art with only slight defects. Then ensues a spirited and delightful contest between Professor Lounsbury and Mark Twain, who proves that Cooper breaks eighteen out of nineteen rules of fiction. The whole contest, a very exhilarating piece of critical byplay, is on a false plane, and of course Professor Lounsbury and other critics are responsible for putting it there. After the contestants have mauled Cooper on both sides, Natty Bumpo shoulders his long rifle and strides off as if nothing had happened. Nothing has happened that really concerns him. Professor Lounsbury thinks that Cooper's style suffered because he left college in his third year, and that the lack of certain qualities in his writing can be traced pretty directly to this lack of preliminary intellectual drill, as if good old Yale or any other American college ever helped a man of genius to write the preliminary intellectual drill which men of letters need which some men get while they happen to be in college and some men get when they happen not to be in college is not the sort which our beloved universities have shown themselves competent to administer we do not know why cooper did not learn to write better there is that in his style which suggests that he was congenitally tone-deaf and that even a course in a theological seminary could not have cured his constitutional defects we do know that after he was dismissed from yale he went into the merchant marine and the navy and found matter for stories good honest yo heave ho and belay there stories and we know too we who have passed irrevocably into the sad daylight of culture which as emerson says instantly impairs the chiefest beauty of spontaneousness we know that cooper is not a great artist he is wholly satisfactory only to those who have no ear for style who are indifferent to consistency of character who do not care how the dry twig got there so that somebody steps on it at a ticklish moment it is not as though cooper were a teller of naive unvarnished tales such tales please the most fastidious mind his fault is that he has coated his stories with a sticky tacky varnish of ugly hue to deny this is not only to misunderstand his merit the great power that overcomes his own dead weight of words but to misconceive the pleasure that millions of readers find in him it is unjust to ascribe to a classic virtues to which it has no claim cooper is an outdoor man critics have shut him up in their studies with books about rhetoric and style and other things of limited interest mark twain opened the study windows and let in some fresh air but he did not stop with this revivifying service he jumped in through the window and stamped on the critics and all the while cooper was out in the woods cooper gave to fiction some wholly new material primeval as the forest native and sincere he knew the woods and he knew the sea he knew indians objectively their appearance and habits of action their habits of mind about which we know nothing he probably did not understand because he did not understand the characters of white men and women the ladies in the pilot are intolerable much worse than dickens dora and agnes but when the mysterious stranger begins to handle the ship how she sails cooper did not like people any too heartily perhaps it is not unduly fanciful to see a connection between his failure to understand his characters and the stupidity that allowed him a prosperous and honored man to make himself and his neighbors miserable through years of quarrel human nature was not his province when he tried to sail in it he was a land lubber when he tried to strike through it on foot he was as greenhorn in the woods to whom Natty Bumpo might deliver patronizing lectures. Cooper loves open-air nature heartily, honestly, and he manages to impart his enthusiasm through his heavy ineptitudes of expression. His Indians are part of nature, like the wild animals. We accept them. We do not know enough about them to question their psychology it is a tribute to cooper that no american since his time for all our real or pretended gains in ethnological knowledge has made any better indians of late years western stories have recorded the contact of our civilization with the remnants of the better tribes of red men whom we have debauched and cheated and with the dirty unheroic savages of the plains but few of the latter writers seem to have been really fond of the indians to have drawn them as convincing heroes or interesting villains men who go north and meet the woods indians still unspoiled i am thinking especially of one sympathetic and shrewd explorer tell us that they find the living brother of cooper's bronze hero dignified of high honor stoical and eloquent cooper's red heroes are at least as convincing as many of the pale-face heroes of romance whom we accept uncas in Chingachgook will bear scrutiny as well as Rob Roy and Robin Hood. It is with them, the figures of myth, that Natty Bumpo belongs. He is not an American character, but a fabulous personage, like Ulysses, Achilles, King Arthur, and the adorable pirates of Howard Pyle and Stevenson. He has taken his place in this gallery of demigods and held it for a century. There he seems likely to remain until we close the institution forever, and the innocent credulity which is the postulate of romance shall become an atrophied function in man. End of section three. Recording by Joseph Nagy at www.josephnagy.com.